So look, it's a real pleasure to be with you. And uh, I've been asked to speak to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, specifically the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to get underway. I want to read two passages of Scripture with you. You have a Bible. The first is just a single verse. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse, 15, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want to focus in on that phrase, cunningly devised fables. And then for our second reading, we'll move back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing this time, and he says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So let me uh, begin by asking you a, a hard question. Does it really matter if the resurrection, the resurrection actually happened? There are some liberal voices in Christendom today who say we shouldn't bother examining the historical accuracy of the claim of the resurrection. Why can't we simply just immerse ourselves in the story as it's presented to us in the Bible and use it as a metaphor, uh, a rich myth that brings colour to our understanding of life? Surely it simply expresses the deep human need to find hope, to find light in the darkness, uh, to believe that hope will, will triumph over despair. Well, I'm afraid that sort of double talk is a complete waste of time. Because Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a set of speculative ideas. Christianity claims to be truth revealed in history. Uh, so either the Lord Jesus died and rose again, or he didn't. The resurrection either actually happened or it didn't. If we don't seriously address uh, the historical accuracy of the Easter story, we're allowing our culture to reduce Christianity to a myth, as Peter called it, a cunningly devised fable. So the gospel in that point just becomes a psychological crutch for us, right? We preach it, we're just like children whistling in the dark to help themselves from being scared. Oh, gracious me. Uh, anyway, as the Apostle Peter said, and we read earlier in the second epistle, we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the great battle that you face in your generation, more so than mine, is the battle for truth. Your generation of believers has to stand in a post-Christian society. And you have to declare that Christianity is actually true. It might be comforting, it might be inspiring, but those are secondary issues. The key thing is, is it true? So the that's the first and most important question. And to do that, we have to examine the historical basis of the resurrection story. Now, one of the unique features of Christianity is that it makes claims that can be evaluated. No other world religion does this. Have you ever heard anybody claim, uh, argue over the historical accuracy of the Bible of the uh, Buddhist myths or over Hinduism stories, whether they actually happened? Of course not. Christianity, on the other hand, has been designed by God to allow people to evaluate it. And here's the really interesting thing. Over the past 100 years, 
Many of the best arguments for the historical accuracy of the resurrection have come from atheists, from atheist scholars. Um, men and women who simply treat the 27 documents of the New Testament like any other uh, ancient document. So they don't think it's the inspired word of God, they just treat it as a document, or set of documents. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there has been a reversal in scholarship in recent decades. A reversal is very much in Christians' favour. So, uh, I want to give you four established, said he holding up three fingers, four established facts uh, that have been um, largely agreed, in fact overwhelmingly agreed, by the scholarly com community. Facts on which the story of the resurrection rests. And the first fact is that the Lord Jesus died by crucifixion. It's not just the New Testament documents which record that fact. Ancient historians like Josephus, Tacitus, uh, Lucian, and all, all say the same thing. Perhaps the most critical scholar around today uh, is an agnostic called John Dominic Crossman. He heads up a group called the Jesus Seminary, and they're all, without exception, atheists. But he says this, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Now that's interesting because if you start to surf atheist websites, I hope you don't, but if you do, you are going to come across old arguments. Maybe a hundred years ago there was this theory called the swoon theory, uh, that Jesus didn't actually die, he just fainted. And according to that, uh, he was then taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb, and he then later revived. Now, more recent studies have concluded that that theory has to be dismissed. Studies into Roman scourging, the way crucified people actually died, the procedures followed by the Romans' executioners, they all underscore the New Testament testimony that Jesus died. So the medical details provided in the Gospel records, they're really, really helpful here. So you remember that moment when the spear, um, uh, recorded in John 19, causes blood and water to flow out from the Lord's body? Well, for that to happen, one of two medical conditions could have occurred. Either the chest was so terribly damaged that uh, hemorrhagic fluid flowed out, or else the pericardium became ruptured. And either of those explanations is catastrophic. Death would have been inevitable. So it's safe to say that not a serious scholar today doubts that Jesus died by crucifixion. So that's the first fact. The second established fact is that Jesus' disciples really believed that he rose from the dead. The famous New Testament scholar Gary Habermas says that there is a virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that subsequent to his death, Jesus', really, Jesus disciples really believed that he appeared to them. And this is a, quite a new thing that has happened, uh, this consensus, in recent times. A century ago, you see, it was popular to say that the whole thing is a legend. It's a myth that evolved over a long period of time, perhaps in the 3rd, 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, the, this idea of resurrection emerges from theologians who were so far removed from the historical events themselves that they could make up this idea. Now, that idea has been rubbished. This is really important. No serious scholar today believes in what's called the legend myth. Atheist scholars have studied the letters of Paul, particularly uh, Corinthians and Galatians. And they're important because they can be accurately dated. And when you look at the various visits which Paul records that he made uh, to discuss the gospel with the other apostles, it becomes clear that his account of the resurrection is very early. But then these scholars, atheists, remember, noticed 
that Paul, uh, when he, he quotes some very early creeds and hymns. I mean, think of 1 Corinthians 11 or Philippians 2. So those passages were clearly composed for use in church services, in liturgy. So they were in circulation just a few years after the Lord's death, possibly even months after the Lord's death on the cross. So the old legend theory has been dismantled. The four Gospels then come along a couple of decades later, after Paul's early letters, and they back up in great detail what Paul had already written. So even if you take the most liberal, critical dating of the Gospel records and the Book of Acts, you can say that four accounts were written within 70 years of Jesus' death at the latest. Now, of course, there's a lot of evidence in support of an earlier dating of the Synoptic Gospels, but I'm just pointing out, even in the worst case, as it were, it's still hugely impressive. Now, of course, the disciples didn't just make up. They didn't just claim that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it was such a passion that they were prepared to die for it. And they were, historically, we know from history, they were martyred for it. Perhaps you've discussed these things with a sceptical friend. Well, your sceptical friend has to explain how a group of frightened, despairing men suddenly changed into courageous evangelists who turned the world upside down. Remember, that change brought about Western civilization. Everything that uh, our, our non-Christian friends hold dear, human rights, the rise of science, everything, comes from a civilization that was built from Christianity. And it's this perspective which knocks all the various fraud theories on the head. The idea that the disciples stole the body, for example, and concocted this fantastical story, that could never emerge from a Jewish mind, for starters. But the fact that they died for their belief, can only be explained by the sincerity of their beliefs. Come forward a couple of years, a few years, and you come across men like Clement of Rome or Polycarp, who, who knew John personally, and you find exactly the same passionate belief that Jesus rose from the dead. That was maybe 110 AD. So when you put all that evidence together, you get multiple early eyewitness accounts of the disciples' claims that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, a few years ago, there was a film called Zeitgeist that was made available on the internet, and it caused a lot of young Christian adults uh, to get upset. The film tries to convince the viewer that the story of the resurrection is a legend that's an invention, as I said, of the 3rd and 4th century. And the big idea that these filmmakers have is that the Christian story of the Lord's death and resurrection is a copycat of stories told about the ancient gods of Egypt who rise and who die and rise again. Now, there are lots of these stories around, say the filmmakers. Stories of a God who enters the world through a virgin birth, who dies and then rises again. So why should we uh, uh, not believe them? Well, use a theological term, that is a load of old tosh. The three gods most commonly uh, wheeled out in support of this theory are um, Osiris, Horus and Mithras. Uh, Mithras springs from a rock. Horus, his birth is so disgusting I couldn't tell it to you. Um, and there is nothing like the story of Mary's virgin birth of the Saviour. But here's the thing. None of those gods in their stories were resurrected. Osiris ends up as a king of the underworld. Horus simply recovers from a scorpion bite. And Mithras never even died. So it's safe to say that in the scholarly world, this idea is, is rubbish. Christians have celebrated the resurrection from the earliest months of the church existence. So fact number two is that Jesus' disciples believed sincerely that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. So let's now turn to fact number three. Fact number three is that 
even skeptics started suddenly to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. It wasn't just his disciples who believed in the resurrection. The great persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, was suddenly changed. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, uh, is the man who created Western civilization at a human level. So all of us should accord him respect. We need to answer this question. What caused Paul to change his view of Jesus Christ so radically? He was a bitter enemy of Christianity. He did his best to snuff it out. But Paul himself, as well as Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian and Oregon all document his conversion. And the trigger, says the historical data, was an appearance of the risen Christ. I could have made exactly the same point about the Apostle James, but uh, I'll not do that for now. Now, those facts need to be explained. So let's just think about the three facts we've surveyed so far. Jesus died from crucifixion. His disciples sincerely believed that he had risen from the dead. And skeptics like Paul and James were revolutionized by a similar experience. But there is a fourth fact, and that is that the tomb was empty. Now, about Gary Habermas thinks about 75% of all scholars, from atheists and critical through to conservative, about 75% of all scholars believe this, that the tomb was empty. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground if Jesus' body had remained in the tomb. All the enemies of Christ had to do was show the body. But they didn't because they couldn't. It's interesting that Justin Martyr and Tertullian record that the enemies of Christianity argued that the disciples had stolen the body from the tomb. Now, when your enemy admits that the tomb is empty, you are on solid ground. Perhaps those four facts don't seem all that impressive to you. But when you put them together in combination, they become very, very strong. We've already talked about how the swoon theory has been dismissed. But what about the old, uh, those old um, uh, theories that the disciples hallucinated or were deluded into believing the resurrection happened? Those theories can't explain Paul or the empty tomb. In fact, all the old conspiracy theories uh, founder uh, 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 and they get into real trouble when they're measured against our four agreed facts. So the Bible's assertion that Jesus rose from the dead suddenly becomes more plausible. Now, for many non-Christians, we have to be honest here, for many non-Christians, the, the lack of historically credible alternatives to the resurrection isn't enough to make them believe it. Their big problem, and perhaps you have this problem too, even as a Christian, their big problem, is that the resurrection story can't fit within their worldview. Even if the historical data supports the idea of a resurrection, philosophically it just seems incredible to them. The truth is, no one's ever going to be convinced by those four arguments I have just put forward. The crucial move, and I can't believe I'm going to say this sentence, but I am, the crucial move is to view the resurrection as a flip rather than a blip. Right, let me explain that. The mistake many non-Christians make is that they, that when they think about the resurrection of Jesus, is that they think it is a blip in the way reality works. Okay, in other words, they regard it as a one-off anomaly. So according to the blip view, uh, life trundles along in a fairly regular way. People are born, they laugh, they cry, and they die. And more people are born, they laugh, they cry, and they die. And then there's this sudden blip. Christ is raised from the dead. But after that, life goes back to normal again. People are born, they laugh, they cry, and they die. They're born, they laugh, they cry, and they die. So 
to the resurrection scene as an anomalous blip in the story of the human race. I remember a student once uh, coming to me after a talk I'd given, an evangelistic talk I'd given uh, at Trinity CU, and uh, I'd, I'd be talking about the resurrection. And he said this, How can you seriously expect me to believe something that is so far removed from my own experience? So I asked him if he believed in the Big Bang. Of course I do, I said. I said, have you experienced many Big Bangs in your life? In your personal experience? Of course not, he said. The Big Bang was a singularity, a moment when reality changed. And that is the right way to view the resurrection. It isn't a one-off blip in the way things work. It's a singularity. It's a moment when reality flipped, when reality reconfigured to allow a new chapter of life to begin. The resurrection changed everything. So let me now tell you the Christian story in that sense. After the twilight of Eden, there seemed to be only the inexorable slide into death, the dark night of the soul. But everything pivoted when Christ rose from the dead. That is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians. The right way to view the resurrection is to see it, as Paul calls it, the first fruits of the world to come. We should see it as the pivot of eternity, the moment on which the hinge of history pivots. <coughs> Now the dark night of the soul is over. We are walking towards the dawn into the light of the eternal day. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 is one of my favourite verses in the Bible. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people most to be pitied, says Paul. Then he says in verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's one of the greatest, the most moving verses in all of Scripture. Maybe you don't see why. You see, Paul has painted this desolate, bleak view of the human condition. And he allows all that hopeless desolation to come crashing against verse 20. Just look at the single word, but. But Christ has been indeed raised from the dead. We can allow all our desolation, or the great weight of our unhappiness and loss, come crashing down on that verse. Way back in 2004, I got a phone call from my wife, Ruth. And she told me to come home as quickly as I could. And when I walked into the house, she told me that she had been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. The next day, she went into hospital and underwent chemotherapy. But seven weeks later, she died. And she was only 36 years old. Now, I can say honestly that I never became angry with God or bitter toward him. But a few years later, I started to feel these waves of futility wash over me. I became overwhelmed by the idea that my life was a futile thing. And of course, I wasn't alone in that feeling. In the year 1896, two archaeologists were conducting a dig at an ancient rubbish tip in Egypt. It's a curious way to make a living, but that's what they were doing. And they discovered a huge collection of manuscripts written in papyrus from the first century. And one manuscript was a letter of condolence written by an Egyptian lady called Irene. Earlier in life, Irene had experienced the death of her son, a young man called Didymus. But now she's writing to a couple who themselves have lost a child. And this is what Irene wrote in her letter. I am in as much grief over the loss of your child as I was over Didymus' death. My family and I have done everything that was fitting. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. I can feel the, 
that gentle, dignified hopelessness in, in those words, can't you? But the Christian doesn't sorrow as those who have no hope. Verse 20 again. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Those few simple words are the reason why you don't have to follow the path of dignified hopelessness of Irene the Egyptian. Perhaps, even though you're very young, there is a deep sadness in your heart this evening. You discovered that this life can be a veil of tears. Well, allow all your desolation, the great weight of sadness, come crashing down on 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. It is a bulwark for the soul. The resurrection changed everything. We rightly say that the cross of Jesus Christ achieved the salvation of sinners. That is true. But it's not the whole truth. The cross of Christ also achieved the victory over death and the forces of evil. Let me quote Hebrews 2 to you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil. You see, when, do you remember the story about when Lazarus was raised from the dead? That was as if he was let out for a little while on parole. The prison house of death was still standing strong before very long Lazarus died again. And this time it looked as if it was forever and ever. But then Jesus died. As the creeds put it, Christ descended into the grave. He entered into the prison house of death. The eternal life, the source of life, came face to face with death. And in that moment, death was destroyed. And because Christ had paid the ransom price, the gates of hell came crashing down. Christ led his people out of captivity and into the presence of his Father in heaven. This was no temporary pass. This was no parole. Christ now lives in the power of an endless life. Death has been defeated. So we can situate our lives in the context of that grand story. A story which runs from creation to new creation. And the pivot of the whole thing is the resurrection. The resurrection is profound and rational. It isn't a blip. It changed everything. As believers in the risen Christ, we walk in the dawn light of the new world. I have spent, as I said earlier, I have spent far too many years of my life in airports. In the run-up to Christmas, I always enjoyed watching reunions take place in the arrivals hall. Five-year-olds running as fast as their little legs will take them into the arms of a grandfather. A student whose mask of studied coolness slips for a moment as she hugs her parents in delight. Well, because of Easter, there is a reunion up ahead for all of us. Listen to Paul again. Now I want you to compare his words with the words of Irene the Egyptian. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we're done. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an historical reality. We can be confident that the, in the historical fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, that his disciples sincerely believed that the Saviour rose from the dead, that he appeared to them. Thirdly, we know that sceptics like Paul and James had their worldviews turned upside down by a similar experience. And lastly, we know that the tomb was empty. Now, those facts are useful. They are credible. But the real confidence comes when we see the profound rationality of the cross and the resurrection. Easter Sunday was no anomaly. No temporary blip in an unchanging world. The resurrection is the pivot of eternity, the source of all hope and joy in our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we are conscious that already some of the people in this room have discovered that life can go dark. But Father, we pray you would lock the message that you have brought from your word into the hearts of young people who still think that life is nothing but happiness and optimism. Because there will come a day, Lord, when they will discover the truth that this is a veil of tears. And in those moments, Lord, I pray that they will remember that the resurrection changes everything. That even though we have to walk in the darkness, we are walking towards the dawn of a new world that has been made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we thank you that you have given us a faith that can be evaluated, that is rational, uh, that, that provides us with evidence. And so we thank you for uh, the work of good conservative scholars who have uh, battled with their liberal colleagues and have come to these conclusions that give us established facts that make the historicity of the resurrection credible. And so we pray your blessing on every head bowed uh, in Jesus' name.